the Round Guy the Podcast, along with Dave Johnson. Our guest today is Michael Drum. We've already spoken a little bit. We're breaking this uh, conversation into several parts because Michael is so knowledgeable. He is the archivist for uh, Iowa's favorite musician, but uh, unfortunately, maybe not the best known. We're talking about Tommy Bolin from Iowa in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's been with so many groups. And we've enjoyed talking with Michael about uh, Tommy and the various bands he's been associated with and the career he had, albeit short-lived, unfortunately. Uh, Michael, where are we at in the conversation? Let's pick it up again. I can't wait to hear more about Tommy Bolin. Yes, I've been kind of thinking about it. Off of episode three, we were kind of about ready to go into Deep Purple, but I've kind of thought that I should set up, a, there's a couple things I forgot since this has been all off the top of my head, and so I wanted to kind of just set up a little context to fill in a couple blanks that would then lead up to the Deep Purple piece. So, um, yeah, it was back in uh, the fall of 1967, Tommy had been born and raised in Sioux City, Iowa, and from the earliest of ages, um, he saw Elvis before he was five years old through his father's fanaticism, basically, that he did not want Tommy and then his next brother, Johnny, to ever, ever, ever follow in his footsteps of working in the meatpacking plants of Sioux City, which, of course, was a huge part of the, uh, the economic basis of Sioux City. And Rich worked there, you know, the whole time that he, that he and Barb were having the family. And quite frankly, it's a horrible job. It's, it's a necessary job, but it's not exactly a soul-stirring occupation. In fact, it's kind of just the opposite. So Rich knew from the get-go he did not want his sons following up in his footsteps. So part of that had him taking Tommy to that Elvis show in 1956 before Elvis was even five. And basically he was like, this is what you're going to do. You know, and back in those days, a lot of parents were scared about rock and roll and wanted to steer their kids in the opposite. But Rich had a unique uh, motivation of not wanting Tommy to be stuck, so to speak, doing what people did, a lot of people did in Sioux City. So he really was insistent upon this, basically. It wasn't as if, hey, how about doing this? It was kind of like, this is what you're going to do. And he did the things necessary to help Tommy have access to musical instruments and to, and to just really focus on, on that. So, And Tommy's grandfather had the DNA gift, you know, the thing that... Some people, very small amount of people, but some people are born with the, with the DNA to where your brain lobes actually support the ability to just kind of be a natural when it comes to music. But if you combine that with that kind of exposure to exciting music, that kind of background from the parents kind of pushing you into it, that that is what enables somebody to really develop themselves. And the people who make it big, so to speak, wind up having their own determination that they're going to be determined to go ahead and try to really make something happen with music. So by the time Tommy was uh, 
16, he had just turned 16 in the fall of 1967, he had that determination. He, and he also knew by then that he had something special. It wasn't just determination. It was based on data, in a sense, of him living his own life and having already manifested such an ability to just hear music, be amazing, pick up guitar, and just be able to just become a master of guitar in a very evocative and thrilling way. And a lot of that had to do with his exposure to both blues and jazz at an early age. And when you have that kind of brain, it's that you just are jazz. Because, you know, jazz is known for people's ability to improvise, to just start playing, and great music will come out. And so he had what I would call a jazz brain. He just had that ability to improvise. And in improvising, basically you've got melodies that can just come pouring out of you and go through your hands. And he, so he spent a lot of time practicing. He was in the bands he was in in Sioux City. And so he had tremendous opportunity between the ages of 12 and 16 to play the guitar a lot because he was so good that the groups he was in who were who had members who knew how to get gigs, that he was able, between 12 and 16, be literally paid money, you know, not like a lot of money, but he was in bands that were actually getting hired to come play dances, uh, parties, there were contests you could participate in. So he just had lots of opportunities to play out in front of people. And if you think about it nowadays, you know, how many 13, 14, 15 year olds are known for being in bands that are playing out. And so that was a unique time too, because uh, the Beatles had had such a massive impact on everything that everybody wanted to be in the band. And all the kids were into the idea of, all these bands that were out. So it was kind of an endless stream of events, parties, whatever, where, where uh, bands could get a chance to play. So by the time he got to be 16, he was pretty highly developed as far as his music goes. But Sioux City, you know, I would say about Sioux City that it's kind of parochial in the sense that it was a small town that wasn't, it was a local area. It wasn't a pipeline to the big time. It was just what Sioux City was. And so while he got lots of opportunities, it didn't really support someone like him in going to the next step. And Brad Miller, who had been in Patch Blue with Tommy, had already uh, left for Denver. And Tommy knew that Brad had left for Denver. And the fall of 67 came up again. And that's when Tommy Beat was made an example of by the administration at Central High for his long hair, his free kind of becoming, you know, the whole hippie movement was just coming on. And Hendrix's album had just come out. And Tommy just was instantly into what Jimmy was doing. And not only was it super exciting from a guitar playing perspective, Jimmy also represented the idea of being free, 
personally free, free expression, breaking the rules, you know, the way he dressed, the way his hair was, the way he would light his guitar on fire, the way he would use feedback. He was breaking all the rules that had been kind of governing the music world at that point. And so Tommy just was totally into that. And he, the whole idea of being free and also that the guitar player could be the star. And, and Cream had just started, you know, there were certain blues bands out there as well that Tommy had gotten into where the guitar played a very, very key role. But it wasn't until Jimmy that the idea that the guitar player was the star became a thing. And guess what Tommy had already developed tremendous chops at? The guitar. So he really stepped into that whole attitude um, and the confidence of he could pull that off. And he famously had some Madras pants, Carnaby Street kind of pants. And, and right before he left Sioux City, he, he had formed briefly a band that never got any notoriety, which was kind of his version of Jimi Hendrix's experience. But it, there was one white guy, him, and three black guys from Sioux City. And they did a few contests in the area, but they never were really a band that was going to get booked. Because, again, the bands that were getting booked were the bands that were kind of playing the old school approach to everything. But he just did it as an expression of how blown away he was by Hendrix. But then that fall, he immediately got suspended for his long hair. And even though he cut it, um, that wasn't really, you know, it wasn't just that. It was that he was representing something that, and the schools are all like, what the hell are we going to do? And they weren't saying it like that, but they wanted to figure out how do we put the brakes on this whole counterculture thing? Well, of course, that was fruitless, but Tommy became a target of that. And so when they wouldn't let him back in, he decided, okay, I'm going to leave for Denver because Brad Miller was there. And Brad had said, hey, come on. And this is where the, the, the termination of Tommy first manifested. He was going to go to Denver. And even if he didn't really have much money in his pocket, he didn't know what he was going to do once he got there. But he was going to go from hell or high water because... Sioux City had nothing to offer anymore. He was never really studious. He was never really into being a student. So when that all happened, his mother and father both said, you know, okay, we support the idea that you would go. Even though, you know, he's 16. He just turned 16. How many parents would give their blessing to their kids getting on a bus and going to somewhere where the only person he really knew was another younger musician guy that he had known in Sioux City. It wasn't like somebody's parents were saying, we'll put him up in our house. And that wasn't what the deal was. So he you know, went to Denver and pretty clear that he would have crashed with Brad early on, but he was so determined it didn't matter. You know, some people would maybe, unless you were running away from home where you your parents were not on your side. You were at constant war with your parents. You know, this is what a lot of runaways are. 
where you just can't handle it. You're too traumatized. Your parent and you and your parents are at war. Well, Tommy and his parents weren't at war as such at all. They weren't. So um, he wasn't running away. He was running towards something, which was this abstract goal of okay, I got to go do my music somewhere else. I want to make it. I want to. In the background, I want to become Elvis. And what is the path to that? Well, who knows? He just knew he was going to go. And so he gets to Denver, and um, he just found opportunities within the first 30 days to basically play Purple Haze for people. And one of them was Jeff Cook. One was Dave Brown, who became his guitar tech. And one was Barry Fay, who had just opened the Family Dog, uh, which was a club in Denver that was an offshoot from the very hip beginnings of the counterculture music scene in San Francisco that Chet Helms did. And Chet was then the pipeline for bringing all the hippest bands in 1967 to Denver. Denver never had anything like that. And so the deal was that Chet Helms would be the pipeline for the national acts, and Barry would then book opening acts from Denver, and he'd be the one running the room. Well, it didn't take long, you know, within those first 30 days, that uh, Tommy had gotten into American Standard, which was the, a band, it was actually a band Jeff Cook had called Crosstown Bus, and Tommy famously pounded on this door when he heard a band rehearsing in this downtown Denver basement. And they let him come in, and he said, "Can I? Can I kind of jam? Can I play?" And he said, well, he looked like he was 14 years old. Okay, and he plugs in and plays "Purple Haze," and immediately, uh, he, and then he left. And then Jeff's like, "Wait a minute, I want I want to reform the band with Tommy as the guitar player." Well, he was able to get a hold of Tommy, found him through the grapevine. And immediately hired him. Well, Crosstown Bus had a, book, a booking agent, a local booking agent. And so the band became American Standard. And one of the first people they got put in front of was Barry Fay, who now had the family dog. Again, he had the position of booking the local acts. So American Standard got booked instantly, pretty much instantly, as a band that could play at a family dog. So imagine you've just left Sioux City, gotten off the bus, and within a month, you're opening for national touring acts in the hippest club east of San Francisco. It's just completely crazy. And he got instant acceptance, instant validation. And the message of all that was, yep, I, I, okay, that's why I went to Denver. It just all happened, like, immediately. And it's not, though, that he was making a lot of money right away, but, you know, he was able to figure out, you know, where to crash, where to sleep, how to continue to just be in Denver. And so, and that was the beginning of proving, he proved himself that this was, the, this was exactly what he should have done. If he had any fear at all, and I don't think he had a whole lot, about going off and just doing this, that no, that that kind of disappeared real quick. And so one thing led to another, and um, 
the family dog actually closed about nine months later. And so that whole situation um, came to an end. And he had heard about that Lonnie Mack back in Cincinnati was doing some shows and some that he could potentially be in Lonnie's band. So he actually left Denver at, right at the point the family dog closed because there weren't going to be any more opening act slots. Okay, so might as well take this offer. He had gotten an offer to play with a professional musician in Cincinnati. So he went there, and I think he was only there for a month or two playing some shows, and that's where he met John Ferris, who wound up being one of the the members of the original Zephyr. So he came back to Denver, and as I was earlier talking about how Zephyr formed up in um, Boulder, and they had, had a run of a couple of years, and then different situations occurred that had Tommy Wine to quit Zephyr. And and again, his determination came into play again. Because all of a sudden, he was going to form his own band. And it was an Energy. And so in Energy, when they first started, it started right after Mahavishnu Orchestra album, Inner Mountain Flame, had come out. And Tommy had already played with Jan Hammer and Billy Cobb, two of the members of the Mahavishnu Orchestra, which was one of the most absolutely mind-boggling, trend-setting, electric bands in the history of popular music. And, um, and so energy formed, and they started out as all instrumental, and soon they realized the kind of clubs they could get gigs in they were going to have to also play blues music. They were going to have to have vocals to try to fit into Colorado because they weren't in New York City. They didn't have a national booking agent. They didn't have the benefits that the Mahavishnu Orchestra had because John McLaughlin had risen up a food chain in the jazz world. And by him being then based in New York, and he had been part of the Miles Davis world, which was the hippest piece in in the jazz world. So he was able to get big-time management, big-time booking agents. He had already become a known commodity, where back in Boulder, Tommy didn't have any of that. Barry Faye became his manager, as they had all been Zephyr's manager. But Barry was really coming from a place of being a concert promoter, not an artist manager. And also, again, Barry was loath to spend his own money because Barry, quite frankly, was addicted to gambling and any money he made, he was going to go spend it in Vegas. But he wasn't really going to be the one helping underwrite Tommy. So Tommy was then left with, okay, who's going to book energy? And in uh, doing these oral histories I've been doing for this manuscript I'm writing for a potential streaming video series where we're, I'm writing a new, in-depth, never-before-told before story of Tommy. Uh, one of our partners is uh, Karen Newberry matthews who was Tommy's long-term girlfriend up until the last year of his life, who was from Denver. And they had moved in together up in Boulder. And in doing some interviews uh, in the past year with Karen, 
she had gone, she had all this Tommy stuff that she had had over the years stored at her place. And she had gone and pulled some of it out. And one of the things she had was a 12-month calendar, the kind you put on the wall. It's like, where each day is like a square on it. And she had the calendar that Tommy used as as Energy's booking agent. He was Energy's booking agent. And he tried to figure out where all the clubs were, where in Colorado and maybe in out, some outlying states. And he would then write in there the dates that they had. And if it actually was paying good money, he would write $300, $500, $600. And that, when she shared that with me, it just really... Um, brought home the point of how determined he was. He was the booking agent. He was the one on the phone trying to hustle up gigs for his first band that was his. And the, the other musicians in the band were all able to keep up with Tommy. They were able to support his style and hang with him and really help him to own wow, here it is, my first band. And But again, the real thing for me was how, this calendar represented how determined he was. He was going to make this thing happen no matter what. And as we talked before, you know, Energy never did get the traction they needed because it was just too, it was too progressive. It was too far out. It was too amazing. But it was over the heads of the music establishment that existed in Colorado. He did come back and do some shows in Sioux City. He did do some shows up in Sioux Falls because of the old contacts he had and whatnot. But, you know, they weren't ever able to really sustain it. And Karen had a full-time job as a seamstress working for a very hip uh, local uh, gentleman who had a clothing custom clothing company she wound up being like their top person in there and so she was making a living helping support them but there was a lot of pressure that when when is this going to happen when is this going to break through they did some demos that were good enough to in theory get them a deal but Barry just didn't he just wasn't he had contacts but he just wasn't really a natural for being an artist manager. So they weren't able to get a deal. And that's when he got the offer to be in the James Gang. And then right at the same time is when Cobham got a hold of him and said, Hey, I want to do, I'm doing a solo album, Spectrum, with Ian Hammer again, and also Leland Sklar. Would you come be the guitar player? Which that project's what really catapulted him. Big time. So one of the things I didn't talk about the other day was, again, how his determination showed up. And he really, you know, part of him was going, wow, I would love to get some more hip gigs like what Spectrum was. And so there was a club in Boulder called the Good Earth, which was downtown on the downtown Boulder Mall. It was in an older historic kind of office building. And up on the second floor, they had built this like 400 seat nightclub and they were bringing in a lot of cool touring acts, a lot of funk, you know, it was a kind of a party 
place, but with a kind of a hip edge as to what kind of music they were booking. Well, I heard a story uh, from a friend of a friend's who back then was actually helping uh, manage and road manage Larry Coriel, who of course was one of the great legendary jazz guitar players of the 70s and 80s. And so what Tommy did was he did what's called four-walling, which is when a club that normally books their own acts to come in, and somebody will come to them and say, hey, I would like to rent the room because I have an act I want to book. And so what Tommy wanted to do, and he did it, was to four-wall to Good Earth so he could bring in Larry Coriel and his band to play, and he would then open for them, and then he would meet them and get to jam with them. Well, who was the drummer in Larry Coriel's band? If anybody who's really into Larry Coriel hears this, they'll be able to answer. It was Alphonse Mouzon, who was a very funky, talented drummer, songwriter, musician. And um, so Tommy did that four-walling. Obviously, they opened for him, hung out. And then Alphonse, like Billy Cobham, got an offer to do a solo album. And Alphonse was extremely competitive with Billy. Alphonse was really driven to want to make his mark. And so, okay, who's he going to hire at that point to play on an album with him? Just like Billy Cobham has. Tommy. And so that's where the album Mind Transplant came out um, that Tommy did. It came out on Blue Note Records. And so that was like Spectrum Part 2, um, where Tommy, again, was now getting to show everybody the depth of his chops, his, his jazz fusion improvisational abilities, which had stunned everybody on Spectrum. But that was fully a manifestation, again, of his, of his determination and how he had you know, was his own booking agent. So he created an opportunity to do that. And it wasn't like somebody pulled him up and said, hey, you want to do this? He made that happen. And I think that's a piece that I wasn't aware of and a lot of people have no clue about that part of Tommy, that he was, he was moving, he was trying to move the chess pieces around to keep his career moving forward. And so, again, the theme for that is, again, this determination so it finally got to the point where he then moved to Los Angeles. And finally, we're talking about nine months, whatever. All this happened in such a short period of time when you really look at it. But in telling the story, you can make it seem like, oh, well, this was way back. So I see we're running out of time here. Um, you got about a so minute and a half. So I guess we're going to have to have filled up what was supposed to be the Deep Purple half hour with this story. But the point is he moved to LA and he was going to, he started working on his teaser album. And, um, but, you know, he was still needing to figure out where am I going to start making some money? And that's when the offer came in from Deep Purple to come down to audition, which I think is exactly where we left the last episode. So I guess we're going to have to do a, another another 30 minutes here to to uh, 
get to that because by golly, I just can just talk and talk and talk about Tommy Bull. So. Well, we're we're into part five where uh, he gets into Deep Purple, uh, and we're going to take a deep dive into that too because that's going to take a little bit. But thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to get another episode right out for you.